Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A vigil has been held in Uvalde to remember the 19 kids and two teachers killed in a shooting at Robb Elementary School. Rosa Maria Ramirez says her granddaughter, who was killed Tuesday, was an artistic child. She loved to draw. She was real sweet. Never getting into trouble. Authorities in Texas say the shooter sent out three private Facebook messages outlining his plans before he attacked the elementary school. Texas Public Safety Director Stephen McCraw says the messages were posted about 30 minutes before the shooting started. At 11, approximately 11 o'clock, he announced, you know, on Facebook, a post, a message that he was going to shoot his grandmother. He shot his grandmother. He re-reported that he had shot her. And after that, he reported that he was going to a school to attack it. The social media companies and authorities learned about the messages after the shooting had taken place. Let's get the latest on the investigation now by going to Uvalde, Texas, in ABC's Jim Ryan. Jim, good morning. So what are the developments from overnight? Hey, Jen. Yeah, we, we now know there's a different timeline from what we originally were told. That it was actually about 40 minutes from the time that the suspect walked into Robb Elementary School until the time that he was shot and killed by an elite team from Customs and Border Protection. 40 minutes. And during that time, parents were rushing to the school, some of them upset that the officers weren't charging into the building the police the uh, the members of this tactical team said that they'd already been fired upon by this suspect that they were formulating a plan and then sent in this team to eventually put an end to the uh, to the shooting spree okay going back to that though then uh, the bus the customs and border patrol agent that we understood went into the classroom and barricade or i guess basically put himself between the kids and the shooter from where did he come because there were all these reports coming out yesterday that he went in with no backup and he was the one who was the real hero in this case but is this yeah. now different yeah it, it seems that it is changing these accounts are changing from one single hero who rushed into the building and handled this himself very quickly we're learning now that it was actually 40 minutes that uh, there was uh, this uh, formulation and this uh, this putting together of an elite team of customs and border protection agents to make up kind of a SWAT team to take equipment and go into the building one of the officers actually was holding a shield as the uh, suspect was shooting at these officers uh, to give them some cover you know as they were moving forward toward this building uh, toward this uh, classroom so yeah it, it, the details are changing daily really and so it does I don't think that we knew anything about kind of the shootout, I guess you could say, between the actual attacker and then the law enforcement officials. That's totally new. And then this 40-minute timeline, when I started reading last night that parents were saying that nobody was going in, maybe they didn't know that initially that the cops had gone in, but they'd been shot at, so they had to come back and kind of get a defensive stance and figure out how to go in next. But you could tell if you were one of those parents, you're probably thinking to yourself, what the hell is going on? My kid is in that classroom, or some kids are in that classroom. What are you guys doing? Yeah, and, and I think in that position, you can sort of imagine time stands still for those parents, and it, the minutes seem like hours as they're waiting for word on their kids. And 
wondering what's happening inside that building. And the police were trying to be deliberate. They were trying to be careful not to have any of their own officers killed or any of the other children hurt. And so, yeah, it's, it, it's a real, it, it's a tough thing to try to put your place, uh, put yourself in that place, uh, either the cops or the parents who are there. So I think we'll learn even more today and tomorrow and, and the next day about who exactly, you know, this person was. Uh, about messages that were went out uh, that, that went out and, and about then the response from police. Yesterday, you had Governor Abbott and his fellow state officials coming out to give an update on the investigation and where things were after the shooting. And all of a sudden, during the middle of the news conference, you have former presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke stand up. He's now obviously the um, contender against Governor Abbott in the governor's race there. But he starts heckling from the audience, and it, it just felt like, oh, my gosh, the, I don't think this is the time for you to stand up when everybody in the nation is focused on just trying to get the information about this. Politics aside for a minute. Well, right, yeah. And O'Rourke said that he had been invited to the news conference by family members of some of those who, who, uh, who were killed, said he didn't even know about it until they let him know. So he went in, and uh, O'Rourke claims that he hadn't intended to say anything, but got angry about uh, Governor Abbott, stood up and started making statements about uh, gun control and these matters. And those on the stage fired back at him. They uh, shouted him down, and, and eventually O'Rourke was escorted out of the auditorium. But, I mean, you're right. It, it, it uh, kind of paints a picture of where this governor's race stands going into November. Abbott has a fairly, a fairly uh, comfortable lead over Democrat O'Rourke. But uh, the, yesterday's news conference wasn't—it wasn't so much about a, a law enforcement update on what exactly happened the day before. It was—it was a political event because you had Abbott, the lieutenant governor, the two senators from Texas, the appointed head of the Department of Public Safety. It wasn't really a—a a, there was nobody there from the FBI, for example. There was nobody there from the police or the sheriff's department. It was strictly—it was a political event and, and a chance for Abbott to make a case about. Uh, what the state is going to do about this sort of thing. So, you know, it's not too surprising that, that a political event would be turned into an even more political event with some really cringeworthy moments there in between, Jen. Yeah, and and that was the thing. You had Senator Ted Cruz on stage, you know, telling uh, Beto O'Rourke to sit down and that he was pathetic and things like that. And I thought, you guys, nobody cares about this tinkling match that all you politicians are having. All we care about is what is happening in Texas, what happened to these poor children and the two teachers, right. and let's move on from there. It just felt gross, honestly, yesterday watching that. Yeah, it, um, it's, it was not fun, and it was, it was really uncomfortable to be there to, in the presence of all this. But uh, you know, did, so did O'Rourke win points? Did he lose points? Not so sure, but I think he took a, a calculated political risk going into the room, it, hoping perhaps to win some support among uh, gun control advocates in Texas, the few there are. I mean, this is a big red state, and uh, the Second Amendment is a big issue here. Uh, by the way, Abbott has his own political calculated risk that he has to decide. Uh, the uh, National Rifle Association is holding its annual convention in Houston starting this weekend. It's, it's happening this weekend. Former President Trump is going to be there. This event had been set for a long time. And Greg Abbott was on the speaker's list, too. Oh. So uh, what does he do? Does he go ahead and speak at that event anyway? Does he, you know, stand the, the, what's, what's his option? If he, if he pulls out, decides not to speak there, is he saying there's some legitimacy to the complaints about Texas gun laws? If he does speak, 
does he is he saying that there's nothing at all uh there's no connection between these two Wow. So it'll be interesting to see if he, in fact, does go to this event. Oh, my gosh. I'll be watching that one now. I had no idea. Thank you for throwing <laughs> that drama into it, Jim. I appreciate it. Sure, Jim. All right. No see you later. Take care. That is ABC's Jim Ryan. I don't, um, you know, I think that that's the part that disgusts me about um, um any type of mass shooting like this is I know that. I know, I know that I'm not Pollyanna about this. I get that this is what politicians do. They take the opportunity to jump on the bandwagon of whatever side they happen to stand on in this issue. And they're either going to say, see, if all the teachers were armed, this never would have happened because the teachers in this classroom could have fought back. And the other side is going to say, but see, this 18-year-old had an opportunity to get his hands on guns. And if he hadn't had the opportunity to get his hands on guns, he would have gone into that classroom and so then, therefore, we need stricter gun laws. See, both sides get that opportunity. However, it's when you're watching a news conference and you think that there's going to be legitimate information coming out about the investigation. Because as human beings, we all want to know why. We all want to know what happened to lead to this point where 19 little kids would be killed and two teachers like, what happened? How did we get here? And instead we get political commentary and then a political tinkling match and name calling. And what? And you just want to say, for God's sakes, grow up. It's not about you and your party and your politics on either side. You know, just hush. Let's get down to what really matters. And that is finding out why this happened and finding out what we can do for these families right now. You know, that's just, I was watching some of the coverage the night of the shooting, and I just found it just, again, gross. Whether it was, you know, it was kind of the mainstream cable networks that I was watching, and one in particular said, you know, how could the president turn this into a political event and, you know, spew political rhetoric and whatever, while that person was spewing their own political rhetoric, I was like, well, hello, Pot, this is Kettle. And then on the other station, it seemed like the coverage was going pretty fair, pretty down the middle. But then I was like, wait a minute, they're bringing in all commentators or all guests to push this station's political view. And it was like, okay, great, so you're having everybody else do your dirty work. It's just... The focus comes then off the victims and it focuses more on partisan lines. And I just, I just find that disgusting. So there. So I'm mad at everybody this morning. How's that? Let's get back to some of these stories coming out of the KFI 24-hour newsroom. Law enforcement agencies in Southern California say they've stepped up patrols near campuses because of the mass shooting in Texas. LAPD Chief Moore says... The department is working closely with the L.A. police to increase patrols around schools and common pathways. Students in O.C. can also expect to see more sheriff's deputies near their campuses. The Palos Verdes Estates Police Department says there'll be more officers at campus this week. Beaumont and Upland have sent officers to school campuses for increased visibility. The Corona Police Department and Riverside County Sheriff's Department say they will have more patrols across the Corona Norco Unified School District. A clinical psychologist in L.A. says small communities often miss the warning signs of a person in distress. I'm Steve Gregory. There's a uh, failure of surveillance. 
No one's watching. Dr. Tony Belize helped create LA County's School Threat Assessment and Response Team, or SMART. He says people need to pay closer attention to warning signs. Generally, what we find is that the individual is marginalized. They are isolated. Sometimes they're isolated, as I said, isolated but connected through mass media. There's a sense of hopelessness. Belize says communities and schools need to invest in intervention programs. Steve Gregory, KFI News. And then did you hear about this? Officials in Sacramento have taken a gun and a loaded magazine out of a second grade student's desk. How does a second grader get a gun and a loaded magazine? They say students at Edward Kimball Elementary told the staff that student brought weapons to the class Tuesday. The school district says they're grateful it didn't turn into a tragedy like the one that happened in Texas. Just a heartbreaking vigil was held in Uvalde, Texas to remember the 19 kids and two teachers killed in the shooting at Robb Elementary School. Law enforcement agencies in Southern California say they have stepped up patrols near campuses all around SoCal because of that mass shooting in Texas. And six people who were trapped in Temple City after this building facade collapsed have all been freed. At 535, we're going to talk with ABC's Brad Garrett. And I think the real question is, what will it take? I, a lot of us thought after Newtown, Connecticut, oh, there couldn't be anything worse than this. Things like that. And then yet mass shootings and gun violence across the U.S. Appear, appears to consistently be on the rise. In fact, we have more firearms than any other country, but they are all legal. It all follows the Second Amendment, yet we still have these mass shootings. There's got to be something somewhere in the middle. But how do we get to that? That's the big question. And Brad's kind of got an approach that he thinks might actually reduce, not eliminate, but reduce shootings and other forms of gun violence. So we'll talk with him in just a second. But right now, it's an interview that we had planned for yesterday that obviously we couldn't do. And Bob Kirkjian, I just want to say thank you, first of all, for being flexible with us, obviously. Bob is the president of the USO West Region. And with Memorial Day weekend starting Today, in many travel cases, it's important to talk about why we commemorate Memorial Day weekend. It's not just the unofficial start of summer, but also we want to focus on our troops and also talk about Fleet Week. So much to squeeze in, Bob. Good morning. Good morning, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's start with Memorial Weekend. And it's just not the time when you break out the barbecue and have people over, hopefully to go swimming for the first time. It is so much more than that. Well, that's absolutely correct, and thank you for recognizing that. This is a weekend where we commemorate and remember those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our country. And I think that that's what's important to remember is we think about those who gave the sacrifice, and but sometimes we almost forget in today's day and age that we have troops who are stationed abroad. It, it's, it's not as top of mind as when we're necessarily in war, when we're in Afghanistan or Iraq or something like that. But right now you have thousands of troops who are stationed overseas. Oh, very true. We have troops uh, in Poland and forward deployed in support of the NATO mission uh, in support of Ukraine. We still have troops in Iraq. We have uh, troops uh, literally in uh, scores and scores of countries. And the USO is there around the world every single day to support them. And, Bob, I have to tell you, when my husband was in Iraq uh, both times, both tours, 
he constantly talked about the USO as the one, I guess you could say, face of, you know, kind of bringing Americans support and things like that to the troops. And he talks about constantly, you're, you are the one charity that he likes to donate specifically to because he said, I have seen their work in action. Well, that's very kind of him. And before I forget, let me say thank you for being a military spouse. I oh, frequently sure. say that the, the true heroes of the military are not the members of the military themselves, uh, but the, the spouses and the military kids that stay behind. Uh, but uh, your, your husband, I'm glad we served him well when he was overseas. Absolutely. And and that's what was important to him is the biggest thing that he saw from the USO was the way that they kept troops connected with their loved ones. Because these poor men and women go off to war and now all of a sudden, let's just say, let's, you know, put Scott in the situation. He's in Iraq. He's in the middle of a desert. How does he keep in touch with, you know, not just me, but with his family and things like that? And that's where the USO steps in, really connecting those two. That's our mission, to keep America's troops connected to family, home and country. And it's even more important right now, Jennifer, because in almost all cases, uh, the troops that have forward deployed into Poland and elsewhere in support of NATO and Ukraine were not allowed to take any kind of communication devices. So no iPhones, no iPads, no computers. And so truly the USO has been the sole way they have been able to reach back to home and let mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, uh, sons and daughters uh, and spouses let uh, and to let them know that they're doing okay. How does that work? How do you guys, how are you the liaisons? Well, we, we have large mobile units that have been going through the tactical assembly areas. And, and these are the areas of troop concentrations that are literally just miles off of the Ukrainian border uh, where we are going through uh, with uh, computers and uh, authorized cell phones. And you can see in, uh, in photos that are authorized for release lines 30, 40 deep uh, of soldiers waiting to spend five minutes on a phone just to call home and, and check in with family and friends. Oh, absolutely. Because I if if you haven't had somebody who has served before and actually on the other side, even like my husband was saying, it's that one check in, even if it's only once a week or something like that. But you see the news, you're, you know, say you're on my side, you're the spouse and you're watching the news and all you hear is the bad stuff. You just need that, you know, touchstone moment to say, OK, but my loved one is OK. That one five minute phone call means more to you than anybody can ever imagine. Well, you, you nailed it. And I'll tell you what, when I was in Iraq, I'm a Navy reservist. And when I was in Iraq, I know every time my mom saw something bad happen on the news, even if it was 100 miles away from me, she was positive that somehow I was engaged or involved or, or uh, injured. And the, the phone call, even if it was five minutes from me, meant the world to her. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for your service. I did not thank you at the beginning of this. Now, Memorial Day weekend uh, comes for at least Southern California with Fleet Week. And I think that is an important. And of course, everybody goes out because they want to see all the spectacular things that come along with Fleet Week. But also... You've got to remember that the focus is on the men and women who make Fleet Week possible. You're right. You're right. And we, we are happy to welcome Fleet Week back after a two-year absence due to COVID. Uh, the fleet is back in the port of Los Angeles. We invite your listeners to come on down. There are two warships uh, in port, the USS Portland, the USS Essex. There are a ton of stack displays in front of the USS Iowa in San Pedro, uh, the public is invited to tour the ships and to tour the stack displays. There's a V-22 Osprey. There's a Huey. There is an Apache attack helicopter. 
there's a Blackhawk all landed in the parking lot in front of the USS Iowa. Uh, visit fleetweek.org uh, to find out more about how to get tickets. It is all 100% free to the public. Bring your family, bring your children, and learn more about our military. It is a fantastic way to spend the weekend and learn more about our military. Oh, absolutely. And if people want to donate to the USO, what can they do? Uh, to donate, visit USO.org, and, and sometimes even more importantly, to volunteer, do the same. We, we run off of 30,000 amazing, dedicated, wonderful volunteers around the world who really make the magic happen for us. Oh, Bob, you are awesome. You are welcome on Wake Up Call anytime. You just let me know what you guys have going on, and I'll make sure we promote it. Hey, we absolutely will. Thanks so much, Jennifer, and thank you again for being a military spouse. Absolutely. Thank you for your service. See you later, Bob. Take care. All right, bye. That is Bob Kirkjian. He is president of the USO West Region. And, um, you know, when you go to these events, one thing that I like to do that my, <laughs> that my husband tells me, you're so cheesy. I know. But I will walk up to, say that we're, you know, I don't know, say that we're going to tour the Apache or whatever. And I always thank the the different, you know, members of the military who are there facilitating the whole thing. Uh, thank you for your service. And he'll look at me and go, oh, God, you're so cheesy. I said, I know, and I know you know my dedication to this, but, you know, Sam over here in uniform doesn't know. And sometimes you just don't know who hasn't been thanked for the service and the sacrifice that they have given lately, right? So you might have people who come from big families who are constantly being, you know, praised and and they know how much they're appreciated and they know how proud their family is of them. But what about that person who doesn't come from a family that can offer that support? What if they sort of grew up on their own and decided I'm going to go into the military and they don't have somebody to write them letters or give them an email or a call or whatever. So you, Joe Blow on the street, walking by them and saying thank you might be really the only thanks that they have gotten in quite some time. It's kind of something to think about. We've got a new timeline that's come out from the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. Authorities say the shooter spent 40 minutes to an hour inside the school. They say he opened fire on anyone in front of him. ABC's Amy Robach says... Officials have confirmed that agents from the Border Patrol's elite specialized units killed the shooter, but not before he killed 19 children and two teachers. Law enforcement officials say they are reviewing video, which appears to show the suspect entering the school as part of their investigation. Brad Garrett, what will it take to stop these kinds of attacks? What will it take to even reduce these kinds of attack. Welcome to Wake Up Call again. Of course, Brad is ABC News's crime and terrorism analyst. So you've got an idea you think might at least reduce the possibility of these kinds of attacks? Uh, maybe, but let's just start with sort of the elephant in the room, and that is guns. The way you reduce mass shootings is you reduce the availability of firearms and the volume of firearms in this country. Now, we're not here to debate the gun issue. You know, obviously people have strong feelings about that. I get that. I carried a gun for 40 years. Um, but every country that's had issues with gun homicides and mass shootings have taken drastic steps to reduce the availability of certain types of weapons or weapons in general. We're not going to do that. I get that. I'm not here to debate that. But what's the fallback if you're not willing to address the gun part of this, which is really the problem? 
um, is, is a better education and awareness of troubled kids, troubled adults in our communities, um, identifying them, keeping track of them, and knowing when their behavior changes precipitously. The problem, Jennifer, is mass shooters in particular uh, typically are younger. Um, they have thoughts about doing this for sometimes weeks, months, or even years. Uh, their behavior will start to change as they get closer to committing the mass shooting. But who is there to see that and to sort of analyze or be aware of it? That is the real key. Obviously, it didn't work in Buffalo. Obviously, it didn't work in Uvalde. And it doesn't, sadly, work most of the time. But we do occasionally do, we do stop mass shooters. Those aren't the ones you and I talk about. But so that's where we are. So is it education? It is. Um, do schools need threat assessment teams? Many of them do, typically not in elementary schools. But this, what, the elementary school wasn't the problem, it was the target in this case. Uh, the kid was, was in high school, but apparently was a dropout, um, which I'm sure further added to his isolation, uh, et cetera. And so it's all about teaching people what to look for and to let authorities know about what they're seeing and hearing. Now, of course, the problem with that is, is the First Amendment, which we all love, okay? But people get all worked up about wait a minute, you're checking up on my kid? You know, he's doing so-and-so. Well, he's just being a typical teenager. And that may well be the case. But the only way you're going to figure out who's really falling or about to run down a deep, violent hole is you've got to know about them in advance. Well, and I think that that is a great point. You know, I'm going to throw my own parents under the bus here. It was great to be their kid because if I got accused of doing something wrong or somebody questioned me, man, my parents were right there to say, no way could our little Jenny have done that. At the same time, looking back on it now, you know what? Maybe they should have... Maybe they should have, you know, questioned teachers or friends or whatever and said, like, wait, maybe little Jenny could be doing something like that. But I think it's instinctual with parents to want to defend their child. Well, of course. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you also have to have awareness and you also have to listen to people. I mean, I could name you more than one mass shooting. One that comes to mind clearly is Newtown, Sandy Hook where Adam Lanza's mother was buying him versions of AR-15s because right. she was trying to bond with him. I can talk about other mass shooters. I mean, those are well-intentioned parents that have super troubled, scary kids that they're trying to pull out of this dark place. And unfortunately, in, in those examples, it just it adds to the problem. When it comes to, I know in this specific case, and I know you got to run, so I'll make this fast, but in this specific case now, we're learning more about the social media of the shooter, and there were a couple of girls that he had um, instant messaged with, and it looks like he was saying things like he enjoyed throwing cats at houses and things like that, and the, the girls still said, eh, we didn't know if that really amounted to anything or if he was just weird. No, at what point do, does the little voice inside us say, no, no, this is more than weird? That, that is such a red flag. I mean, you know, there's three indicators, and I'm talking generally speaking here. It's fire setting, harming animals, and believe it or not, bedwetting. Those three things in studies have suggested that, that 
in, in people that commit violent acts, they, they tend to have, not always, have those things in their background, but in particular, harming animals. One of the problems with every mass shooter is they have no empathy for anyone or anything. Anybody that would harm a cat or a dog and enjoy it has zero empathy. Uh, and that should be, I mean, like fireworks should go off when you hear people that do that. Thank you so much, Brad. I wish we had more time. I know you got to run. Take care, Jennifer. See you later. We'll do it again. That's ABC's uh, Brad Garrett. He's ABC's crime and terrorism analyst. And I, I, any more, and I don't know what's in the mind of it. Are you kidding? Of a 16, 17 year old now. And I know that when I was younger and somebody was weird, I usually just tried to ignore them. You know, they'd call you or, you know, send you some sort of message and, and you'd be like, oh, that, that guy's weird. He's just trying, he's just trying to raise a red flag or get my attention or something like that. But I wasn't thinking it in a dangerous way. Granted, that was, you know, back in the day. But now I'm wondering if in our young people's minds and in the world that they live in now, do they constantly have to have that in the back of their minds? And unfortunately, I think the answer is yes. They have to be a little skeptical of the things that their friends are telling them or tweeting or putting on Facebook or social they have to. And I'm not saying that it's their duty, but unfortunately, it is part of the role now that a lot of our young people have is almost to be policing of each other. And it's uh, just such a, just such a, honestly, just a crappy world that our kids live in right now that they're put in that position. All right, let me get you back to some of these stories coming out of the KFI 24-hour newsroom. Six people who were trapped after part of a building facade collapse have been freed. The L.A. County Fire Department says it happened yesterday afternoon at a strip mall in Temple City. Officials say a 50-foot-long piece of the building's facade fell and the people in the store were unable to get out until firefighters cleared the debris. Three teenage girls have apparently OD'd at an apartment in Santa Monica. Police say the girls were taken to the hospital last night. Two of them were in critical but stable condition. County health officials say more than 81,000 people died in 2020, most of whom died from heart disease. COVID-19 was the second leading cause of death, followed by Alzheimer's, stroke, and diabetes. The annual report also shows the lowest death rate was in West L.A. County. The biggest spike in death rates happened in the southern and metro areas of L.A. Anaheim could be sued by the Angels for killing a deal to sell Angel Stadium to a group that included the owner of the team. The feds allege the former mayor expected a million dollars and shared insider info about the deal. Councilman Jose Moreno says if the city is sued, the Angels owner, team representatives, and anyone else involved could face depositions. When the FBI says that they have evidence of documents being sent by Mayor Sadu to Angel's representatives, that to me is evidence that there was collusion to create a deal that was not to our interest and that was corrupted. The Angels say the council's decision Tuesday to void the deal is disappointing and the team is evaluating its options. In Anaheim, Corbin Carson, KFI News. Law enforcement agencies in Southern California say they have stepped up patrols near campuses because of that mass shooting in Texas. Also, we are keeping an eye on this story that happened in Temple City where six people got trapped after the facade of a building came down and trapped them inside. Also, the Angels could sue Anaheim for killing a deal to sell Angel Stadium because of a federal corruption investigation. And I should mention all the people in that Temple City building collapse got out. They are just fine. All right. Right now, 
It is a palate cleanser of the very best kind. Let's cleanse our palate with cheesecake. Chef George Geary joins us again. George, welcome back to Wake Up Call. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so for those of you who might have missed the first time around that Chef Geary was on with us, we found out that he made the cheesecake on my favorite show in the entire world, The Golden Girls. Anybody who's ever watched that knows that that's how all problems were solved. All things were celebrated around the table with cheesecake. George, one question I forgot to ask you last time was on this National Cheesecake Day, I know that you can make a cheesecake with a graham cracker crust, a cookie crust, a pastry, whatever. What was the Golden Girls cheesecake made out of, or were they different? Uh, All of them were made with graham cracker crust, except the very first one that I did was a chocolate cheesecake, and that was with, like, an Oreo crust. Okay, and I remember that, because didn't Rose go to the store, and they were all having, like, oh, this isn't going to work, ladies, we're not going to be able to live together, and then she said she went to the store and pulls out the pink box and said, I got a chocolate cheesecake or something like that. Is that the right episode? Yep, that's the episode. (laughs) Yep. Oh, it's crazy. I'm a nerd for this kind of stuff. I love it, but... (laughs) Knowing that you are the man who made it, and also last time we had Chef Geary on, specifically we had him on because of his book, Made in California, the California-born burger joints, diners, fast food, and restaurants that changed America that all started right here in California. It's a fun, fun book if you haven't read it. Since I was on last, I got uh, another book deal, so that book (gasps) will be volume two in about a year and a half, because that book only stopped until uh, 1965. And we have so many more burger joints that in uh, crazy places it started. So it'll be coming out uh, then. Okay, well, we'll book you in advance a year and a half out because we want you back on for that yeah. for sure. <laughs> All right, so National uh, Blueberry Cheesecake Day. Can you can you give us your recipe or what's what makes the blueberry cheesecake one of the best, one of the most coveted? Well, there's two ways of making that, and I think I've made it both ways in my my book. One has it with the blueberries inside the cheesecake, like a blueberry ribbon, and then there's one that you just top a a plain cheesecake with uh, a blueberry sauce. Both ways work really well. But blueberry cheesecakes are not the easiest thing to find like it in bakeries, so you have to buy my books to be able to make it, and that's uh, the Cheesecake Bible. Oh, the Cheesecake Bible. I love that this is a Bible. Okay, in it, when you talk about the ribbons portion of it, are you smushing mm-hmm. up the blueberries so that you get the, the blue color inside? Is that is that how you make the ribbon? You can do it two ways. You can take fresh blueberries and put it into the batter so it'll be like, uh, let's say, chocolate chip cookies suspended. Okay. Or you can cook the blueberries to make like a blueberry jam and then after you've made the cheesecake batter, you swirl that in. So it does, you don't want the whole thing to look blue because it gives it an off blue color, not a really vibrant blue. It's kind of like a yeah, kind of like an ugly purple. Oh, yeah. Nobody wants to eat. Oh, hey, have some ugly yeah. purple cheesecake. Wait, what? No, thank you. Yeah. Okay. So Unless the lights are down low. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's the cheesecake by candlelight version. I like that. Um, when you said yeah. that you bake the blueberries into it, do you bake or not bake? Because aren't there two different ways? Can't you do a no-bake cheesecake kind of thing? Yeah, but those are kind of gelatiny. And yeah. I, I know I have, I've got some 
cheesecakes that are baked in my book and unbaked, the unbaked ones. It was just to fill the pages to make sure I had 300 recipes, but I don't make <laughs> the unbaked very often. They, they're kind of gelatiny and kind of, uh, uh, I remember I worked at a, a hotel chain and when any conventions ordered cheesecake that was like that, it was their, it was our cheapest dessert and it was horrible. Oh, squares. you probably, you probably so. thought, I don't want to put my stamp on this. I don't want anybody to know I made it. Yeah, yeah. Certain groups didn't have money for a big dinner, so they'd have 500 people, and they'd want the ch- that or an ice cream scoop with no uh, fudge sauce. And, uh, who wants a scoop of ice cream? That's it for dessert. <laughs> Don't blame the hotels when you or when you eating uh, banquet food because if somebody ordered it and the hotel would rather give you something better, trust me. Oh, I could not agree with that more. Okay, going back to what makes a cheesecake perfect. I mean, the man who wrote the Cheesecake Bible knows how to do it. So say you do that graham cracker crust. Uh, what is that butter and sugar and the graham crackers to make that crust? Is it a typical one or do you have a little special something you put in there? Well, some of the crusts have some peanuts and uh, not peanuts, walnuts or pecans in it. But um, I don't put sugar in it because there's already sugar in the graham crackers. You don't need it any sweeter. So it's more of just a base. There's a cheesecake company years ago up in uh, Santa Barbara that they didn't use uh, graham crackers. They used old biscuits. They dried like your regular biscuit that you would get and use that. So you can almost use any crumbs of any sort. But graham crackers is the typical uh, crust. Okay, and then when it comes to the actual cheesecake portion, what's can you give us a, like you know your basic recipe on that? Uh, basic recipe: uh, two pounds of cream cheese, uh, four large eggs, and a cup and a quarter of granulated sugar, and flavoring of some sort. So about a teaspoon of fresh uh, or vanilla. And a little bit, like a half a lemon, a squirt oh. of the lemon. The the little bit of the tartness of the lemon brings out the flavor of the uh, uh, vanilla. And so that's about it. It's That's your basic, and it, it'll make a nine-inch cheesecake. The biggest problem with cheesecake is the type of pan. Everyone uses spring form, and you really need to use a cheesecake pan. It's a different type of a pan. It, it pops up instead of the spring form rips. And a lot of people, my number one key for a cheesecake, everyone talks about having a uh, a crack, and I always say, you put more whipped cream on top and nobody cares. <laughs> Amen to that. Chef George Geary, yeah. I wish we had more time. He is the author of The Cheesecake Bible, also made in California with another book coming out. I know you have L.A.'s re- legendary restaurants. You've done it all, but I think The Cheesecake Bible is what we are most interested in on this National Blueberry Cheesecake Day. Come back on with us. Will you again? I'll see you soon. Yay! I heard you might be coming in, and that absolutely made my day. I'm going to look forward to it. With a real cheesecake for you. Woo! Best news ever. (laughs) George, thanks as always. Great to talk to you again. Thanks. Take care. Thanks. You too. See you later. You can follow him, by the way, Chef Geary on Instagram. That's where I follow him. And uh, he just... 
This guy travels more than anybody I know. He's a great, fun follow on Instagram. This is KFI and KOST HD2 Los Angeles. I'm Jennifer Jones-Lee. This has been your wake-up call. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.